This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. For today's property patter, I'm joined by Alison Mullen of Telemaster and my colleague Georgina Musket. Alison is a chartered surveyor and registered valuer specialising in telecommunications disputes. She's worked for over 24 years in the telecoms industry, acting for both landlords and the operators. Georgina is a senior associate in our real estate disputes team and also specialises in telecoms. Our plan today is to focus on some of the practical issues arising from the Electronic Communications Code. As many of you will know, the code governs the relationship between property owners and code operators. The new code has been in force since December 2017. Although its purpose was to speed up the rollout of electronic communications apparatus, it's generally acknowledged that it has had the opposite effect and has led to stagnation in the market for sites, which has caused significant problems for some developments. Alison, you're very close to negotiations on the ground. Would you say that the market is still in a state of stagnation or has it picked up at all? Hi, Emma. Um, well, my experience here or my uh, and my entire team here at Telemaster, we are seeing a little bit of traction on certain site type transactions. So, for example, some lease renewals and uh, new lettings on what we would class in the industry as greenfield sites, so ground based mast transactions we are starting to see a little bit of tra um, traction with um, one particular operator ee and three or via their infrastructure company mbnl um, i would say the rooftop work transactional work it remains at more or less of a standstill we get a little bit of traction and then for whatever reason, perhaps because of a recent tribunal decision or something like that, we find ourselves having to backpedal again. So um, in the last two and a half years, to answer your question, not a great deal and certainly not as much as any of us would like. Um, so, yes, fairly stagnant still. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing some figures at the, the start when the code came in and it was pretty shocking how the number of transactions had dropped. Um, and as you say, that's also our experience from what we're seeing is, you know, we've we've negotiated surprisingly few of these agreements, um, considering that, you know, we're three years into the new code. Um, and this was supposed to be helping the operators ro roll out lots of sites. Um, and that's certainly not what we have seen. Um, and of course, the issue of rents has been the major point of contention between landowners and operators. Um, we'll talk a bit about what that looks like in practice. But um, Georgina, perhaps you could explain a bit about why rents are proving so difficult for the parties to agree. Sure. Um, so the under the new code, rents are now valued on a no network or a no scheme basis. Uh, which means that you ignore the use of the site for electronic communications apparatus and you just look at alternative uses. Um, and that sort of valuation methodology is leading to significantly lower rents. So, for example, um, in the first case that we had on valuation, London Borough of Islington, 
the operator put forward a figure of around two and a half thousand pounds per annum, which it and it didn't resolve from that figure, even though its expert at the hearing said that the uh, value for the site under the new code was just one pound. And contrast that with the landowner's expert who sought a figure of around £11,000 per annum. Um, and that was a, for a rooftop in London Borough of Islington. And then in Compton Beecham, uh, which related to uh, open land, it was a land on, on the edge of an arable field. Um, for the whole of the 10-year term, the operator's expert, um, expert said that the value was £26. Um, and again, the landowner said, well, they thought that that should be nine and a half thousand pounds per annum if the operator got the terms that they were seeking, um, but reduced it down to 4,300 per annum if they were going to proceed on the basis of the standard Ofcom agreement. So there's obviously quite a big gap there in terms of figures between what the operators are putting forward and what the um, landowners are putting forward um, as well as your consideration or your pure rent um, there are also compensation provisions in the new code so there are various heads of compensation that can be claimed by the landowner or site provider as they're referred to um, in London Borough of Islington the landowner claimed compensation for various things so um, disturbance during the installation works, uh, noise nuisance, additional wear and tear on the roof, um, and periodic payments for a variety of safety checks and management costs, as well as a contribution towards the general maintenance and repair of the building. The tribunal awarded compensation for reasonable legal and valuation costs in seeking to agree terms, but not any costs of you know, resisting the imposition of a code agreement. And the tribunal also awarded compensation for temporary use of the, um, the owner's land at ground level whilst the apparatus was um, being installed in the initial phases. The other claims that were made by the landowner were rejected by the tribunal, but the tribunal did say that it would be possible for them to bring further claims in the future if. Uh, you know, additional loss or damage could be proven. Um, but one point to bear in mind is that that provision to go back in future for further compensation, and that only relates to code agreements that have been granted by the tribunal and not code agreements that are entered into consensually. Um, so that, that's kind of the main, that's the main case on compensation. I mean, in terms of Consideration, obviously, Alison do jump in, but we've since had the London Quadrant or Maple House case, which was again a, a rooftop case where the tribunal sort of seemed to try and row back from its position in London Borough of Islington. And they said there that they think that well, they awarded um, the consideration and the compensation. They kind of it conflated the two um, and they said that that was going to be £5,000 per annum and that they thought that for any rooftop site in the future they thought the sum the figure would be around about £5,000 um, so that's kind of slightly more more generous for the for the landowner um, but I think obviously Alison will correct me if I'm wrong but I think we're yet to kind of see the full impact of 
Yes, I would tend to agree with that, um, Georgina, in terms of the Maple House. On one, on one hand, I think it may well do um, landlords some favours. However, the idea that uh, that 5,000, criteria 5,000, could be applied across the board on all rooftop sites, I must admit, is, is proving rather a challenge Certainly, if, for example, we look at a, a busy urban building in central London, Manchester, wherever, um, where, you know, a landlord's facilities management costs are quite high. There's a lot of activity on that roof for other reasons, servicing aircon units, lift shafts, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, there's a tangible there's a tangible facilities management cost to that landlord. Now, does that amount to um, £5,000 in terms of the burden? Um, it, you know, when you include access by the operator as well, um, it, there's a lot of debate about that. And I certainly, when I'm doing site-by-site -site valuations, yes, I am seeing that uh, the valuation is coming out at criteria 5,000, some, in some instances less, but frankly on others, it's coming out at more. So it does concern me slightly that in Maple, there was this, you know, the judge, they decided that, you know, it should be applied across the board. Um, so that is definitely making some of us rather nervous when we're undertaking our valuations. And of course the operators are using that to their advantage as you would expect. Um, so yes. It's still uh, still a lot to play for, I think, on rooftops. And uh, it's not, in my opinion, a done deal at Criteria 5000. It has to be looked at, it, particularly with commercial buildings on a site by site basis. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? You know, it's, it's always got to be looked at on a site by site basis. Uh, I mean, when I read the, the Maple House decision, it did seem to me that perhaps it was almost in... <laughs> some desperation uh, that the, the, the tribunal was saying, oh, for goodness sake, okay, Islington went too far, you know, let's, <laughs> let's give some, some indications which might encourage parties to um, reach agreement because I think, you know, the Islington rent was just so low um, that, you know, as much as the um, so-called Linda Evangelista argument was rejected mm -hmm. by the tribunal in that case, you know, that that's the reality. You know, there is a certain price below which landowners don't want to let their building because it's not worth it. Precisely. And, you know, I think I think we're all we're all we're all agreed whether you work with the operators or here on the landlord side is that you know we want to reach a stage where we can agree consensual agreements in a non-hostile environment where we can have a sensible discussion which ultimately is going to save um save everybody everybody money and 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 allow 5G roll the rollout of 5G um so, you know, but it's, and I think we are, you know, in particular operator, we are, I think we are making some headway. Um, but that said, you know, the idea of a nominal, um, uh, you know, an alternative use value or nominal value of 50 pound, um, you know, or a hundred pound or even a thousand pound on many, on many sort of busy commercial buildings is just, not it's just creates a very hostile negotiating platform from the outset so we definitely definitely need to move 
away from that. And we are seeing that a little bit, thankfully. Yeah, we definitely need to. I mean, I remember um, one of the barristers who was speaking at the RICS telecommunications forum saying that, you know, when, he, when he'd walked in that day to the conference, uh, someone had said to him, oh, you know, are you are you an operator advisor or a landowner advisor? And he said, you know, in my so many decades of a property barrister, no one's ever asked me if I'm a landlord person or a tenant person, you know, you, you act for both. And there just isn't this same divide. And these, um, as you say, you know, it's not helpful to have this level of divide between the parties uh, so that they're, you know, unable to reach agreements. I mean, we received from the decisions, you know, experts are so far apart um and then that also forces the tribunal perhaps to make some findings about that evidence which you know it would rather not make um as we said you know you're on the ground doing these negotiations Alison um and about the principles behind these rents um and how the tribunal has been applying them um you know how are those negotiations working on the ground for you obviously as you say it's some um, fraught on occasion um but you know are, are we seeing some progress in the rents do you think we definitely have um two quite different markets um at the moment in terms of uh rural greenfield transactions i would say as i said earlier on i would say that we're seeing quite a bit of traction now and um, particularly with um the ee and three camp and perhaps that is driven by the fact that EE are the emergency services provider and they have a contract to uphold and so forth to provide that service. Um, but then when we, as I said earlier, when we go to when we talk about rooftop sites, ground here at the cold face, are we getting deals done and lawyers, respective lawyers instructed? No, is the short answer, because we're still we're still very stuck on uh, what the the burden element to the landlord should be, whether that is valued under the consideration and or compensation, because obviously we don't want to double count in terms of management costs to the to, for certain landlords, access management and so forth. That is proven a really difficult um, idea for the some of the operators to actually accept the true cost and burden of that on a landlord, because at the end of the day, our clients need to be in a cost neutral position. They can't, they can't accommodate a tenant of any shape or form on their building if they're going to, if they're, if it's going to cost them basically. So at the very least, it must be cost neutral. We know there's no money to be made here for landlords. It's not a profiting exercise. It's about ensuring that it's a cost neutral position. Yes, and, and you're right, that is proving to be very difficult, I think. I think one of the problems was that, you know, when the government introduced uh, these changes, you know, it spoke about it in terms of treating these communications as a form of utility, but it is very different. You know, if a, if a water pipe goes in underneath my land, you know, hopefully no one needs to go down there for quite a long time and, you know, fiddle about with it. Uh, whereas, obviously, you know, with this apparatus, um, people are there fiddling about with it quite frequently uh, and depending on where that site is located you know as you say that can that can have a real impact on you know property management and all the rest of it and, and it can involve costs so let's let's move on from rents to some of the more detailed terms of these code agreements one controversial issue i think is that the tribunal has suggested that operators don't have to define what 
apparatus they're bringing onto the land, other than to say it will be electronic communications apparatus as defined in the code. Now, it seems to me that could cause some headaches. What sort of practical steps can landowners take to try to address the issues there, Alison? Okay, I think in the old code era, you know, landlords were generally happy to consider the let's take for example a new letting proposal we were generally happy to consider and negotiate using what we call in the industry as the general arrangement drawings or the time planning drawings which is just obviously a general overview of what the siting what the appearance of the site was so it doesn't have any um, design details structural information anything like that and i think in order to mitigate the landlord's risk and to understand precisely what it is that if we can control the amount of equipment, we need to be able to at the very least control where on the building that equipment will be located. And then of course the access rights to, to, to for the operators to maintain and operate on, on the building and you know set down areas and set. So the key is to have, in my opinion, to have the detailed design at the very outset and have that and and have that information come through from the operators almost. Uh, you know, fee undertakings in place. They've been out to do. They've been out to do their surveys, what they call in the industry multi uh, MSV surveys. So a full measure up and so forth. And at that stage, provide the landlord with detailed design drawings so we can get we can fully appraise the design, the the entire design of that proposal. Um, and that is about as much control as we can we can expect to have. The amount of kit within their demised areas and within or what they're going to do in their set down areas, as you said, Emma, we won't have it, we have virtually no control over, but we can still retain control over precisely what those demised areas will be and in, in, and, and be allowed the opportunity to fully evaluate or appraise the detailed design of that proposal. And that would include for that would follow as well for an existing installation where there is major works, i.e. a 5G upgrade, because and it goes beyond sort of the, the time limits we have today. But, um, you know, often these 5G upgrades on rooftop sites are for all intents and purposes a rebuild. It's major works over a two, three week period. And again, the landlord must be given the opportunity to appraise that, not withhold consent to the amount of equipment, but understand the detailed structural um, impact on their rooftop. Yes, because I under, as I understand it, 5G is going to evolve quite a bit more kit, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm I, I'm a chartered surveyor, not an engineer, so I'm not qualified to say precisely what the weight is. But this is very bulky equipment. Now, some items, you know, for example, their equipment cabins with a box of tricks, which makes everything work. They're shrinking in size, so far fewer cabinets needed. So much less footprint than perhaps um, three or four G required. However, um, the antennas and the supporting steel work and the what they would class as auxiliary equipment, so RRU, so all kinds of fancy bits and pieces of equipment required uh, 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 in, um, behind the antennas and so forth. Lots of it, lots of it, particularly where there is, you know, for example, if you grant a lease to Cornerstone, then you're going to have Vodafone 
and Telefonica operating. So often they need two sets of equipment, particularly the auxiliary equipment, two sets of that. And then with the other camp, EE and H3G, again, that is two operators. So yes, lots of kit and heavy equipment as well. And again, for, forgive my lack of technical understanding, but they have to be on very specific locations on a roof as well. Um, because it doesn't always work. Oh, well, let's stick it all on a, on one mini stub mast in this on the center of the, the, the roof or on the plant room. And often that doesn't work anymore and they have to be on the corners. So basically sterilizing large areas of a rooftop. So to answer your question, yes, lots of kit, but different types for 5G seen from a from a sort of practical perspective from the agreements that I've been involved in is as you say Alison having that very clear red line as to what the demise is because part of the problem is is that the operators have even if it's not expressly provided for in the agreement they have an implied right to upgrade subject to certain conditions and the problem is that the term upgrade isn't defined anywhere in the code. So no one really knows, you know, what that means in terms of, as you say, you know, adding 5G or upgrading to 5G, etc. Um, so it's important to have the red line and then also potentially advising clients to go up there themselves. Um, after the installation and, and do their own kind of site audit to, to have a record exactly what equipment is in there uh, on, on the date of the beginning of the agreement. Uh, I, I, precisely, George. And also, you know, there's so there's so much to, to discuss around this. But, you know, we also have the um, radio frequency and exclusion zones for 5G. They're much bigger than four, three or 4G. So we have to think about the impact on any, any third party going onto that roof. We have to think about risk assessments for our clients. Um, you know, when window cleaners, when other engineers, doing aircon units and so forth, does that landlord, does our client have a risk assessment? Does he, does, do they understand the exclusion zones, the impact that might have a, on their own, on the rooftop, but also on neighboring buildings? So it's critical, in my opinion, to have exclusion zones for that very reason, for risk assessments over the term of their occupation, to have those notated in some detail on the drawings and um, be included on the on the site files, basically, for that building. But um, yeah, and that's not really something perhaps we've thought about in any great detail in the past. But of course, our world has changed a lot. And, uh, you know, we must ensure that our clients are able to have are able to comply with their health and safety regulations. Yes, it's really important, isn't it? Um, and these upgrading and sharing conditions, you know, they're, they're very interesting because obviously there's been a fair bit of case law on those and when they should apply. Um, and I think it's fair to say perhaps not quite the findings we'd expected on that side. But um, Georgina, when do you think we can expect some further guidance from the tribunal on those principles? Yeah, so the, the conditions in relation to the sharing and upgrading, there, there are two conditions in paragraph 17. So the first of those is that the changes um, have at most a minimal adverse impact on the appearance of the equipment. And the second is that there's no additional burden imposed on the landowner. 
Um, and we have had some case law from the um, Upper Tribunal Lands Chamber already, um, but it hasn't always been particularly consistent. So um, in the University of the Arts case, the tribunal described the inclusion of those conditions as the starting point and that an operator would have to justify more rights if, if it wanted more rights. Um, and then um, the more, more recent case is a case called On Tower and um, AH and FW Green, which is from last year and another um, land chamber case where the tribunal actually declined to include any of those safeguards at all. Um, and they expressly disagreed with the decision in University of Arts to say that, you know, there had to be pretty compelling evidence um, required to oust those. We now know that permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal has been granted in that case. Um, and I understand that it's floating um, due to be heard in November. So that is going to be the next big case um, on those provisions and it will be Court of Appeal Authority. So binding on the, the lower court, the upper tribunal. And this has been the problem, hasn't it, throughout the code? You know, there's been so much litigation since it came into force and then, you know, everything seems to be appealed um, and all of this takes time. And in the meantime, landowners and operators, you know, don't know where they stand. I mean, Alison, you mentioned earlier, you know, reluctant to engage with negotiations at certain points because they think, oh, let's see what happens with that case. Um, and in the meantime, the reality is that, you know, the communications actually that our economy needs, you know, it's not getting rolled out um, and that you know could cause a problem and particularly given the importance of our economy bouncing back after COVID um, you know that that could be a real issue. Um, I want to finish up with uh, just talking a bit about access we mentioned access at the start and I know that this causes real concerns for many landowners um, particularly when it comes to rooftop sites. Um, Alison, how are you seeing that play out in negotiations? Yes, Emma. Um, right. <laughs> I think you know we know from um, we know that um, Martin Rogers QC was fairly categorical about the full and free access principle for operators. However, at the coal face. Again, let's just concentrate on rooftops because often greenfields are completely different when it, you know, often unfettered access rights is, um, is, is a sensible and reasonable solution for all concerned. Not so the case with the majority of rooftops. Okay, so we, we understand that the operators must be able to come and go, um, you, you know, need to be able to service their equipment, maintain, be able to access the site. Um, for uh, emergencies and, and so on and so forth. We, we recognise that completely. However, landlords do have to comply with, uh, with health and safety. They do have a duty of care. Um, and for that reason, you know, we feel, I've, and I think I speak for everybody on the landlord side in terms of specialist agents and those working with landlords in terms of whatever type of negotiations here, is that it's absolutely critical that we retain some kind of control insofar as understanding who is coming and going from that building. Um, it is as simple as that. We're not questioning the operator's contractor's credentials, but never the, nevertheless, we need to record that information and so forth. And 
you know, actually, so uh, sometimes when we approach the subject with the operators, they they get it, particularly when it's a school site or college or something like that. But they're more hesitant. We are finding on say a commercial building, um, and and certainly when it comes to residential tar blocks, we are seeing um, we are still seeing a lot of pushback about that. Um, you know, our concerns about full and free access without any without any checks and measures being put in place by the landlord. So that is proven a tricky um, and and continues to be a contentious point for us to to try and get get past. Yes, and I have a feeling we've only just seen the start of some um, the issues there. I think because you know this is treated, I think perhaps not with quite the understanding I would have expected by the tribunal and. Uh, I'm afraid I predict there will be issues and um, we will then see these things come before the courts again so there will be more litigation um, but uh, yeah I guess we'll just have to wait and see how that pans out. Um, thank you both for that very helpful outline of the key practical issues here uh, which are clearly arising for um, both parties in their attempts to work within the new code uh, it does seem there are a lot of areas still for potential dispute. And so I fear the flood of tribunal decisions will probably continue. Um, but it will be interesting to see how the parties continue to adapt to that case law and where the market ends up. Uh, my thanks, as always, to our listeners for joining us. Uh, please do get in touch with any of us if you have any questions arising from this podcast. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. <laughs>